Welcome to Detoxicity. This is a podcast in which I try to change the narrative around masculinity a little bit and allow some progressive voices and some interesting voices, diverse voices, to come into the picture. My name is Mike Joseph. I host and produce this show, and I thank you very, very much for listening and for supporting from the bottom of my heart. It means a lot. Now, if you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you are subscribing to it. If you aren't, please press the subscribe button on wherever it is you're listening to it, and uh, that way you'll get episodes on demand when they come, uh, which is usually on Wednesday mornings. I also certainly ask that you uh, spread the word. Uh, Please rate the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen. Um, Make sure you leave a comment if you have something nice to say or if you have something constructive to say. It doesn't all have to be nice. And by all means, tell your friends, tell anyone who you think might get some creative juice or inspirational juice or just would uh, you'd like to listen to this please spread the word uh, however you can i am on social media if you would like to follow me i am on instagram at detox pod guy uh, my twitter is on hiatus for a little bit it will come back but it is tis mike joseph feel free to follow me on either of those platforms there is also facebook.com slash detoxicity and if you have a comment you can email me detoxpod at gmail.com I am always on the lookout for new guests, so if you know somebody who you think has an interesting story to tell or something to add to the overall conversation around detoxifying masculinity, please reach out to me via any of those platforms, and certainly if you yourself would like to be a part of this podcast, please reach out, let me know. Once again, I thank you for listening. So everybody has an origin story, right? And I feel like detoxicity has multiple origin stories. And one of those origin stories goes back to November of 2016 uh, and my work with a charity called the Jed Foundation. Uh, the Jed Foundation is based here in New York and they work with young people in high school and college uh, to protect emotional health and prevent suicide, provide tons of resources for young people and their parents. And uh, A group of us was brought together to speak publicly about our own experiences with mental wellness, mental illness, mental health, whatever you want to call it. And uh, out of that group, uh, one of the people that I found myself most drawn to was uh, Dr. Ali Matu. And uh, I don't know if I knew that Ali was a uh, mental health clinician at that time. I do know that he spoke very passionately and... um, very uh, eloquently about the mental health situations that he'd been through in his life. So when I started Detoxicity, one of the first people that I wanted to get to talk was Ali. Uh, Unfortunately for me, Ali was in the middle of moving across the country and was not available for a while. Uh, But thankfully, in the better late than never category, I was able to sit down with Ali and talk about the work that we both do with regards to mental health and mental wellness. And um, Ali and I talk about his own experiences with anxiety, particularly social anxiety. Uh, We talk about the changes that are being made in psychology. It feels like almost every day, whether it's telehealth or psychedelics or what have you, uh, we talk about sort of the trial by fire approach to conquering some of your uh, mental demons. And we talk about his love for sci-fi, which I do remember being part of the discussion that he and I had uh, five and a half years ago. Anyway, uh, I'm rambling, and you probably want to hear the actual conversation. So without any further ado, this is Dr. Ali Matu. What's up, Mike? Good to be here. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to see you. Yeah. So, yeah, my name is Olimatu. My background is I'm a clinical psychologist by training. I really love anxiety. It's been my life. I love talking about it. I've had it. I've treated it. I've experienced it again. The circle of my life is anxiety, I guess. There's been a lot of it the last couple of years, too. Oh, my gosh. Hell, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so there's that. So I'm an anxiety guy, and... You know, I was I was a practicing psychologist in New York City for a long time, and I sort of got frustrated by how hard it is to access good quality mental health care as well as good quality mental health information. 
And so I started a YouTube channel back in 2015 called The Psych Show, where I try to share everything I know with the public. I really got interested in storytelling types of events. That's where you and I met through the Jed Foundation. That's where you and I met. Absolutely. Good good times in a great organization there. And, you know, throughout my career, I've tried to find more and more ways to... um, to share and to give away what I know and to make mental health more accessible. And so a few years ago, my family and I, we, we moved from New York to California. My wife had a job opportunity here. It brought me back to the state I grew up in. And I wanted to try some different stuff when I came here. And so I've been working at a mental health startup ever since I got here. We're trying to make it easier for people to overcome social anxiety. So that's what our app is kind of focused on. Will it work or will it not? I don't know. That's Silicon Valley (laughs) startup life though. And um, still doing as much of the media stuff as I can, trying to give away stuff and love, love, love being a part of conversations like these. And I appreciate having you here. Whenever I have a clinician on, it's it's cool to get the, the clinical perspective, right? And it's cool to get the personal perspective. And what I like about you is that you can offer both. Mm. So it, it's because a doctor who isn't necessarily dealing with depression or anxiety can speak about things very intelligently from the perspective of what they've learned and from the experiences of others you have a more visceral attachment which i think sort of makes for i mean just for the purposes of this podcast makes for better conversation but also (laughs) (laughs) makes you i think better at what you do yeah i'll tell you two things one is the the secret here is everyone who really gets involved in mental health professionally whether you are a therapist, an advocate, a researcher, whatever it might be, you've got some personal experience with it. There's a reason why you're getting involved in it. I'll tell you, no one gets involved in this for the money or the fame or anything. <laughs> like, that's not it. <laughs> you mean not everybody gets to be Dr. Drew or whoever? No, 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 not by any means. And so it's really because you care there's some emotional meaning behind it. It doesn't necessarily mean that everyone who's involved in this has personal experience themselves, but maybe they have a family member or maybe they've witnessed something with a friend. They've got a personal curiosity or passion behind it. What surprised me, Mike, what I never thought I'd really see is this world that we live in now where people like me can talk about their lived experiences and still be considered uh, professional. You know, when I went to grad school back in the 2000s, it wasn't that long ago, but I couldn't be doing this. Like, you could really risk your job and your reputation in the field if you talked about your own experience. There were people who did it. A very famous one is Kay Jamison, who wrote a book, An Unquiet Mind. She's a bipolar disorder researcher who years later came out with this memoir about having bipolar disorder herself. There's other people like, oh my gosh, um, uh, the founder of Dialectical Behavior Therapy. I'm blanking on her name right now, but she's another individual who developed that. Marsha Linehan, she developed this treatment to help people who have borderline personality disorder because all the other treatments out there at the time when she was living through this stuff were junk. And didn't really help anyone. So there's so many people like this in the field, but usually they would share their experiences when they're much more secure or senior in their role. Mm. And for someone like me, I still feel very new to this world. Being able to share at this point, I I never thought I would Mm. see that. But here we are. I think the world's completely changed when it comes to this stuff and still has a long way to go. A long way to go. It's a good sign of the times that you are able to be as open about your personal experience as you are and still you're licensed to help others. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of the way it should be. It should have always because I think that as much as much of a stigma as there currently still is regarding mental health, I think that maybe people's fears are eased a little bit 
And this is what I hate about Brooklyn. There's somebody like jamming music down the street. <laughs> you know, I did a collab with BuzzFeed a few years ago, and I was so excited to to record at their studios because I'm like, oh, man, I make videos out of my home. I always hear all this crap going down the street. And I walk into BuzzFeed. I had to sign all this paperwork like NDAs. I'm not going to talk about what I see here and all that stuff. But we go in and we're at their set, big fancy set. And still we hear the police sirens <laughs> outside and yeah. the fire department. There's no way around that in New York. It's just that's the way it You is. can't escape it. No. You can't escape no. it. The city, um, I always feel like New York City is a constant assault on all of your senses. And on some days, it's that beautiful, fresh bagel you're smelling. And on other days, it's that beautiful, fresh urine you're smelling in the subway. Yeah. You, know? you are constantly. Or maybe not so fresh. Urine. Yeah. The freshly sun, sun-kissed sun urine from a year sun-drenched. ago. Sun-drenched. Yes, sun-drenched. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Oh, so what, what got you started on your journey? Was there a defining point in your life when you were like, this is what I want to pursue as a career? You know, I had no idea what I wanted to do as a kid. I I, I thought pilots were cool. I kind of grew up in the 80s and 90s. And I, I took a few Pan Am flights before the company completely collapsed. But That's a deep cut right there for people who are under 30. <laughs> yeah, I know. Pan Am. Like, Go look it up, y'all. I, I completely aged myself every time I open up my right. mouth now. But yeah, like that was back in the era where air travel was like super cool. And it, it was like exciting to be on an airplane. And it was like fancy. Not like now where people are jam packed. It's a chaotic experience. Everyone's wearing sweatpants. Well, <laughs> I, I guess everyone's always wearing sweatpants now everywhere. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but then an uncle of mine told me, you can't become a pilot. You have glasses. Later, someone told me that like, when I grew up that like, yeah, there's pilots who have glasses. Like, of course that's there not, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's not an issue. But in my mind, like, again, anxious kid, I was like, oh, okay, I guess I can't do that. And then I was growing up in Silicon Valley. And so a lot of my other relatives told me you should be a computer scientist. So I took one computer science class in high school, and I, I was so terrible at it, Mike. I dropped it one month in. My mind just did not work in that way. I couldn't logically follow the code and stuff. So I was like, okay, well, I guess I suck at that too. And I had no idea. Yeah, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I really liked science fiction. That was my jam. I loved all, I love, I love Star Trek. I love Planet of the Apes. I loved Sequest DSV, another reference no one will probably get. I love anything that kind of ask these big questions of who are we? Why do we do what we do? The Twilight Zone was also one of my favorites. Man, all the questions of every Twilight Zone episode, I would stay up for like hours and hours thinking about this stuff. So I liked that and that was kind of it. And I I wasn't a good high school student, almost failed high school. And then I went to community college and just by chance I took introductory psychology. And I only took it because I waited until the very end to register for classes. And it was one of the only classes left open. And I knew it covered a lot of general education requirements. So I was like, all right, let me just take this. Knew nothing about psychology and then was completely blown away by it. That first day, Professor Wendell Gosling did this thing where he went over every big myth we have about the brain, like you only use, what, 5% of your brain, all that kind of junk. And he demystified it, challenged those myths, talked about how psychology has these scientific answers to these questions. And I didn't realize it at the time, but over the course of that, that class, it was all those questions of science fiction that I was so interested in. They were kind of being answered now. And Mike, it was a first time in my life where I was reading ahead of, of, of the class. Like this one day I came into class and it, uh, again, I wasn't a good student. I didn't realize there was a test that day and I didn't study for it. I thought it was going to be next week. But because I had been reading ahead so much because I loved learning about psychology, I totally aced that test. But so this is the kind of guy I am. Like if I'm really interested in something, I pour myself into it. And that's kind of what I did with psychology. And later on, I 
as I took those classes, I was learning like, oh, there's words for these things I've experienced, like mm. social anxiety. These are depression. These are real things with real causes and real treatments. And now not only do I understand myself better, but I, I feel like this is the kind of stuff I want to help other people with. And this is what I want to go into. So totally not planned. I totally fell into it. And I feel like every every success I've had in my life, I just sort of fell into it. There was no grand plan to do it. I just kind of followed the stuff I like. And, and that's kind of what's happened. That's awesome, though. I feel like that's a best case scenario where it's just like, hey, these are things that I'm cool about, that I'm interested in. I'm just going to see where this takes me. And then a combination of your enthusiasm about whatever the topic is. And, you know, maybe there's a little bit of luck thrown in there. There's certainly intelligence thrown thrown in there. All of that adds up to success. Yeah. I talked to people who are interested in psychology or mental health or like creating content online, that kind of stuff. Something I always advise people now is think about your, your passions and what you're excited about. Think about what's marketable or there's a use for it or people are willing to like pay money for it. And then also put in there your interests. What are the things that separate you like for me i'm super into science fiction and all that kind of stuff so find a way to put all those pieces together the stuff you're passionate about and comes easy to you stuff that's marketable and you can probably build a business around it and then the stuff that makes you uniquely you like how can you combine those things and i think that that will lead you in a good direction just pursuing your passions alone might not because your passions might not be something anyone wants to pay money for is actually you know? interested in exactly yeah exactly yeah exactly but you that's a good life hack that, that yeah you know, I, I, again i fell into it <laughs> i didn't <laughs> i learned those lessons the hard way so i know a little bit about your story so i'm yeah. gonna kind of ask a leading question here please when did you recognize your anxiety as anxiety? Was it something that only came to you after you'd taken a course and read a couple of books? As a kid, were you like, something's off and couldn't put a finger on it? Particularly social anxiety, because that I don't think yeah. is something that very many people have discussed on this particular podcast so far. Well, I thought there was always something wrong with me. When I was growing up, when I was in elementary, middle, and high school, I never called it social anxiety. I never called it anxiety. I just thought I was weird and strange and people didn't like me and no one would ever love me. No one would ever want to be with me. No one would ever be attracted to me. It, it, it wasn't like, oh, that's my anxiety talking. No, that's the truth. Those are facts, you know, like period. When I was in kindergarten, and if we kind of put the pieces together, in retrospect, it all makes sense. Knowing what I know now, there's a lot of anxiety on my mom's side of the family. My parents were immigrants, and I didn't really do much outside of the home till kindergarten. So my daughter is four years old. She's been in daycare preschool since she was six months. You know, like since six months, she's been socializing. I didn't really socialize until I was six years old going into kindergarten and I was terrified of it. So what what would happen to me when I was that young is something called selective mutism. In certain situations, I didn't talk. In certain situations, it was like someone pressed the mute button on me. I know it sounds like an X-Men superpower, selective mutism. It's not. It's not. It's not. (laughs) I, I wonder, was it didn't talk or couldn't talk? I didn't like, talk. You tried to and the voice didn't come out? I was like, frozen. Was frozen? Frozen. Okay. Yeah, and not like in a let it go kind of situation. <laughs> like You clearly have a young child because <laughs> yeah. you brought up a fro- let it go frozen reference. Yep. Oh, man. Yeah, well, you know, the cold never bothered me anyway. But people <laughs> did. People really did. I just, I felt like I couldn't talk. I felt like I didn't have words. It's just uh, deer in headlights. You know, which now I know is a part of the anxiety process, like the freeze response, freezing in anxious situations and scary situations. A lot of time, 
it, it's helpful. If there's a threat around you, being frozen is a good thing because, yeah, you and I have experienced this probably on the subway. Something strange is going down on the subway. <laughs> you freeze and just yes. don't do anything. Wait for it to get to the next stop and then you run, right? Sometimes freezing keeps problems from escalating. So freezing is a good thing, but that's all I did around other people. My mind had associated other people with danger and it, it reacted that way. And I, I knew other kids could talk, but I couldn't or felt like I couldn't. And I didn't tell my parents or anyone about this. And, you know, Mike, I went to kindergarten, what, 88, 89. And so there wasn't a language around that in kindergarten. They right. thought, you know what they thought? My kindergarten th teacher thought I wasn't anxious, but that I couldn't speak English. Probably because I'm this little brown kid, right? And, and sure. I'm the one brown kid in the class. And so they sent me to ESL. Now, I could speak English. It was anxiety. But they kept me in, in ESL for like five months. And then they accidentally figured out that I could hear what the teachers were talking. And one of the teachers was talking crap about one of the students, how he still hasn't figured out his left from his right. And, you know, all this. And I saw me look at the kid and saw me look at hands. And they're like, oh, crap. I think I'll like it. <laughs> and this, he should not be in this ESL <laughs> He should class. not be. Let's get out of it. Let's get him out of here so you can continue right. talking crap about these kids. So, but I mean, that's, that's another layer of this is my parents were immigrants. I was one of the only brown kids in this class. I felt very alone, strange, and different. And that feeling is what stuck with me throughout elementary school, throughout middle school. In middle school, it became more of a feeling of depression too, because I, I, I didn't think this feeling would change. I didn't think it was going to get better. I started liking girls and felt like no girl would ever want to touch this i was like um, so preoccupied with that i was like no one is ever gonna want to touch me so all that stuff lasted until high school when like my intro psych class i accidentally took a public speaking class thinking i was just gonna study famous public speeches i got that oh, yeah <laughs> How, how did you draw that conclusion? I read public speaking and I'm like, cool, I'm going to study Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy and these famous speeches. That sounds really exciting. I thought it was going to be a history of public speaking or something. And then on that first day, my teacher, Miss Hayes, said, like, welcome to public speaking, where all of you are going to overcome your fear of public speaking. And then I freaked out. Out. It was that frozen yeah. response kicking in again. How many bricks did you shit? <laughs> I felt just like in kindergarten again, frozen, stuck, you know? What I should have done is drop that class, just like how I dropped computer science. The problem <laughs> was I needed to get uh, the teacher's approval to drop the class, and that meant I had to talk to her and ask her. And I was too afraid to ask her because of my social anxiety. And so I didn't. And in the way a lot of the anxious kids and adults think is like, I'll just avoid it and it'll work out. I'm just going to not deal with this and somehow it's going to be okay. You know, I won't tell my professor that I am completely overwhelmed and behind in all my work, but somehow it's going to be fine. Yeah, it'll fix itself. It'll fix itself, right? That's what was going on in my head. And I didn't drop that class. And I'm so glad I didn't because that class totally changed my life. We we did these like one-on-one -on -one small, not even speeches, but just talking to other people. And then we did, that became like very small group versions of that. And then eventually we started um, speaking up and, and giving a little bit of a speech, like a one-minute thing. And what changed everything for me is we would debrief after those. And I remember some of the like coolest kids in school, because what, what was exciting about that class is it had freshmen, sophomore, juniors, and seniors. So everyone across the school could be taking this. I'm a little tiny freshman, and I'm taking this class with the really cool seniors and juniors. And there's this one person who I thought was super cute in that class and this other person who I thought was super cool in the class. And we're in this group together and they both shared how while they were talking, 
they thought everyone else was judging them, that what they were saying was boring and stupid, all that stuff. I was like, you think people think you're boring and stupid? But you're like, first off, you're hot. And say, and so I will let you get away with whatever. And you are super cool. Like, and you both objectively did a great job at what you were sharing, but you still had those thoughts. So then I was like, I was doing the math here. And I'm like, if, if everyone has these thoughts about themselves, then these thoughts are totally not true. That you, like everyone can't all be weird. Right. Right. So if everyone thinks they're weird, then no one's really weird. Right. Right. So I learned that and I learned that the feelings I had were kind of natural, that everyone gets afraid in this way. And then from that class, I took, I enrolled in speech and debate. I joined the rally board. And by the time I was a senior, I went to my state speech championships and I was emceeing assemblies at school and I loved it. I kind of went the other direction where I, I really loved public speaking and I really loved all this stuff. And I'm like, I think at the end of the day, connecting all this stuff together, I think the thing of it is I really do care about other people and I don't want to disappoint other people and I want to help other people to be happy. And I think that's also why I was so sensitive to social anxiety because I was so sensitive to what other people what they're thinking and what they're feeling, mm. you know? So I think all mm-hmm. this stuff is connected. But to answer your original question, I did not have the words to understand those experiences of social anxiety probably until way late in college when I started to volunteer at a um, obsessive compulsive disorder clinic and I started to learn about exposure therapies. I started to realize what my public speaking class was, was exposure therapy. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, that was me. This is what helped me. Oh, this is what I want to do. This is the path I want to go down. It's so funny to me to think about seeing you for the first time. And this is, this was 2016. Yeah. So it's a little over five years ago. And you know, you're a tall, handsome guy, apparently extroverted. You told your story very, you know, you told a difficult story, mm-hmm. an emotional story, very eloquently. And I'm trying the juxtaposition of that versus this image of a socially anxious <laughs> teenager. Yeah, it's a little weird to balance in my head. But I, I mean, I get it. Objectively, I, I can send you some photos and you'll be like, oh, I see. Oh, yeah. Oh, there. There you are. There's that. <laughs> there's that anxious kid. Anxious, uncomfortable kid. You know, the thing I have realized by being a mental health professional, I have given up a long time ago trying to size up people's stories based on what I see or what I read. Right. Because I've always been wrong, Mike. I see a form and someone says they're coming in for depression or bipolar disorder or any number of challenges they might be experiencing. And the person I see never matches the forms I've read and their story never matches the expectations I have. So the thing I've come to realize is no one looks like their diagnosis, you know? Right. And everyone is dealing with stuff, and you're you're never really going to know what they're dealing with until you hear their story. So I've treated a lot of people who have social anxiety, and some people have a ton of friends, have no problem making new friends, but they struggle so much with dating. Or they're fine with dating, but they can't make new friends. Or they're cool with dating, they have a lot of friends, but they're terrified of talking to authority figures at work. Or they're well accomplished, but they have such a hard time with public speaking. There's so many ways in which social anxiety works, and it's never what you expect. I I am 
seeing myself in a lot of what you just said, mm. which is why I'm grinning the way I am without going deeply into specifics. Cause it's not about me. It's about you, Ali. But yeah, I see myself in a, in a few things you said there. I'm, I'm wondering what do you think is the biggest barrier to entry for folks to get help? Cause I've surmised two different things or maybe three, eh, two different things. One is cost. Yeah. Obviously. And the other is a cultural barrier, which is a lot less tangible, a yeah. lot less easier to explain in a soundbite. Yeah. But for men and for people of color, and yep. the two of us are both, there there seems to be a combination of the cost barrier to entry and the cultural barrier to entry. And also, again, I think as a, a person of color, that wants to relate to another person of color, yeah. there is a lack of black and brown clinicians. Yeah. So I just asked a really long, I, the question version of a run-on sentence. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean... What do you think is a, the biggest barrier to entry? I mean, that there's no way to ask that question in a non-complicated way because it's a complicated issue that involves all of those things. So do you think barrier to entry for anyone seeking mental health support or specifically for people who have social anxiety or, or both? For anyone seeking mental health support. Uh, it's all that stuff. I mean, so the older I get and the more life experiences I have, the more of these dots I'm connecting. So I've got, I'm fortunate enough to be a dad and have a four-year-old which is like, what? How did that happen? Not only did someone, <laughs> was someone okay touching me, but they wanted to start a family with me? What? What? So I think about my daughter, and we had our first pediatrician appointment like three days after she was born. Mm -hmm. And um, going to see a doctor, going to see a physician, getting your shots, getting labs done, that's just a part of life. That starts early on. And I know there's parts of the world where that is not a part of life. And in some ways, we have a lot of privileges here with healthcare in the United States. In some ways, we don't. But for most people in the United States, you're getting some form of early childcare from a physician really early on. Now, like throughout that pediatrician process, they ask about developmental milestones like, is your baby? crawling? Are they starting to walk? Are they eating solids? They ask about all of these things. They do like vision screenings to make sure the vision is developing, all that sort of stuff. Now, they do also some autism screening. There's been a lot of great advocacy around autism, and, and they do some of that. But sort of once you get to school age, like kindergarten age, we kind of stop tracking developmental milestones. We keep looking at like growth milestones, like are you on your growth curve? Are you growing in, in, in height and weight as like you're kind of expected to? Like sure. pediatricians are really concerned about that. But we stop asking these developmental milestone questions. And Mike, there's a ton of development that happens. Like, can your child separate from you and go to school? You know, when you're away, are they worried about your well-being? Do they think something bad has happened to you? Can they make new friends? Like, if their friend is absent from school that day, are they okay? Are they having total breakdowns? Are they able to ask for help when they need it? There's so many mental health milestones that need to happen in elementary school, in middle school, in high school. But we don't really track those things. It's the social, emotional, mental development. We're not really as focused on those things. And then also... Kids just don't really grow up talking to a counselor, talking to a therapist. I think some schools have more resources and they have those right. available. There's some amazing schools, both where you're in and New York and where I'm in and in California. And I, I will always applaud New York as the very first state just a few years ago that passed a law that requires K through 12 public education that involves mental health at every year. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. I, I don't know if New York is still the only state, but they were the first state to do so. And so there's some mental health education that's happening in New York, but not in all places, right? So not every kid knows what it feels like to 
talk to a mental health professional. Not every school has it a part of its curriculum. We're not really tracking these kind of things. So I think for all of these reasons, mental health as as a uh, professional service that you can seek and get is really mysterious to people. And so what are you left with? You're left with what you see in pop culture. And what do you see in pop culture? Well, you probably see some kind of therapist sleeping with their patient because it makes for an exciting story. So number one, you're like those people, they're like trustworthy. Or number two, you're probably seeing a white male therapist figure that doesn't, you know, like a like Freudian kind of looking type of person. You're seeing experiences which seem really alien and different. When the reality is, the way I I describe therapy is like, if you've ever had a coach, if you play soccer, the coach teaches you how to get better at playing soccer. They don't play the game for you, but they know the drills. They watch you in action. They give you feedback. They train you. they, They help you improve your game. A good therapist is just like a coach. You're going there to get better at something. Maybe you're getting better at anger. Maybe you're getting better at dealing with your mood. Maybe you want to get better at your relationships, your anxiety, whatever it is. They know the drills. They know the skills you need. They know how to get you from A to Z. A to Z sounds like it's a straightforward process. It's more like (laughs) A to D, then back to A, then you're jumping Mm -hmm. the W, and then W is really freaky. So you're going all the way back to B, and no one knows where Z really is. But that's really all it, it really is. But I think for so many reasons, people don't know what it's like. And then comes the stuff that you were talking about. Let's say you do know that this is something you want or need. Then getting access is really difficult. Do you have insurance? Do you have insurance that covers it? Is there some, a therapist that takes your insurance? How do I even determine who's the right therapist for me? You know, cognitive behavioral therapy, humanistic, psychodynamic, integrative, family therapy. Like, what does all this stuff even mean? How am I going to find someone that I like? How do I find someone who actually understands my my experience? Yeah, and it's a little bit better now with telehealth being more of an option for more people because of the pandemic. But most therapists are concentrated in in urban areas, and if you're in a rural area good luck finding a therapist. And most therapists, I'll I'll tell you, Mike, are, you know, I'm not full-time practicing right now. I'm working primarily at at the mental health startup I mentioned. But most of my friends who are practicing full-time, they're over full and overwhelmed and burnt out. You know, a good friend of mine was just made to be a therapist. Like the thing that gets him going in the morning is waking up and knowing he's going to see like 10 people today and he's going to help them. Well, I was asking him the other day, like, how's it going? And he's like, horrible. I'm like, why? I thought, I thought you love this work. And he's like, yeah, I do in person. Mm. I don't like being in front of a screen all day. Like my superpower was being there with people. And I, I feel like I've just had like kryptonite for like the last you know, a few years. So no one in the mental health community is doing well. They're all full. They're all overwhelmed. It's, it's been tough for, for the mental health community, just like as it has been for everyone else. So, um, these are all the reasons there's so many reasons and we totally, and then there's the public policy stuff. We underfund all of this, you know, it's, it's, there's so many things going on. Yeah. That's a, a mouthful for sure. <laughs> How do you kind of contend with that? I mean, obviously you're not practicing full time. So yeah. maybe, I don't know if maybe you're just not as exposed to the potential burnout as some of your uh, colleagues might be. Yeah, I think I'm more insulated from it now. But like me not practicing full time is also how I'm dealing with it. Not just like self-preservation. That's not it. But I am trying. So there's a there's this mental health professional. He has a great TED talk called Mental Health for All by Involving All. Dr. Vikram Patel is his name. And I'm super inspired by his work because what he has done is he looked to see, all right, what happens in areas of the world where there's no healthcare system? There's no functioning healthcare system. And he looked at 
the models that work in those environments. And it's it's models where you basically you want community leaders to know the basics of medical care. And then those community leaders are already the people that that folks in those communities go to. And they're able to respond to the unique needs of their community in the culture and language of that community and provide support to that community. So he took this model and applied it towards mental health. And so he trained community leaders in India on the basics of substance use and depression treatment. And these are not medical professionals. These are not mental health professionals. These are community leaders. And Mm -hmm. his program was really successful in helping to reduce substance use rates and helping to improve depression. And so I'm all about that, Mike. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what I try to do with my YouTube channel. That's what I'm trying to do with the startup. Empower community leaders with the basics of this stuff. And at, at the startup I'm at, startup I'm at, it's called Loop. We're trying to make social anxiety super easy and accessible and empower, make it, make social, make help for it easy to access by empowering people in communities. That's kind of what we're trying to do. I think that's, that's one model forward. There's no one magic cure for all of our mental health problems. And the other thing is like mental health doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to the professionals. It belongs to everyone. And we need a lot of different things happening in a lot of different places because a lot of people need help. But this is where I think my my strengths best match. Make this stuff easy to digest. Make it easy for other people to learn so that they can go and do this work themselves. That's what I'm trying to do. That's how I cope with all this. I respect that so much. Because you are a younger guy in terms of clinicians, I've worked with, with many clinicians myself over the years. And... I'm definitely seeing more options and more results with people who are on the progressive side of the spectrum, of the modern side of the spectrum. What do you see in terms of mental health that are sort of recent breakthroughs or or things Mm. that younger or more progressive people are doing that's really moving the needle? That's a great, great question. I... I think it's a really cool time for mental health because a lot of the the traditional ideas we had about mental health, I think, are being challenged in, in a number of ways. So traditionally, mental health was thought about as this like 50-minute hour where you go in in person and see someone and you work on that stuff and it's like long-term you're kind of meeting and talking about this stuff. And some of the real cool research I've seen is moving towards, all right, is there any way we can help people overcome their phobia in just one session in like a two to three hour period of time? And then I'm seeing people that are are doing interesting things like, can we help people with their substance use problems just through like, a series of videos we have online, you know, and curriculum that goes along with it. I'm seeing really cool stuff happen with like group therapy, like, hey, can we make this more affordable by five people at once going through the same experience? And more recently, because of COVID, telehealth is now a possibility being you don't have to be in the same place at the same time. That's exciting for me, because now people who are more rural have access to like, world-class experts, you know, that you don't have to be near each other. So I'm seeing all the traditional stuff about therapy being challenged in really big ways. And through that, I think we're going to find more opportunities for more people that's more accessible and hopefully more effective too. The other stuff that I think is super interesting, there's super interesting research coming out of like psychedelics and I was, uh, you know what? I was actually trending in that direction. I, I was listening to an interview with Will Smith yesterday 
where he talks about, I don't remember the name of the, it's it's some plant that has psychedelic properties. Yeah. And it, it was a life-changing experience for him. Yeah. And I even had a doctor, this was a few years ago, it wasn't a psychedelic, it was it was like Special K or something, yeah. like uh, one of those, yeah. Um, ketamine, suggested probably. It. Yeah, it yeah. Was, yeah, it was ketamine. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, as someone who's only done psychedelics once in my life, I do think that there there's opportunity in that realm. Well, I mean, here's the thing is like after after LSD and after a lot and, and cannabis and a lot of um, and then the psychedelics after they were sort of rated as these controlled substances, these illegal substances, research on them ended medicinal research did not occur. So up until like the last 10, 15 years, we haven't had any research into these more, the role that these drugs might have in mental health. And so one of the things that they, there's a really good episode of, um, of mind explained. There's a good episode of mind explained on anxiety, which (laughs) features yours truly on Netflix. But uh, plug, 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 plug. But their episode <laughs> on psychedelics is really good. And if you haven't seen it, it's it's a great 25 minute overview on on how these medications work and or how these drugs work. And, and one of the real interesting things about about psychedelics is they can reset some of the ingrained habits ingrained associations your your mind has formed. And for people who have experienced real chronic depression and anxiety, and those things have really been resilient to either therapy or, or more traditional drugs, well, now we have a new option. And that is very exciting. It's very exciting to have new drugs that are working in different ways than what we've had before. Because 50 years from now, I think we're going to look at the way we did psychiatry, the medical treatment of these things, which is most often medications. We're going to look at this era that we've been in as like we were using, we were using a hammer when like a scalpel would have been more appropriate. And with time, what we'll have is a world where you can have better precision personalized medicine that based on your background, we're going to go with this. This is probably what's going to be most helpful for you. And right now it's more of a trial and error system that for everyone, we try this first. And if this class of antidepressants doesn't work, then we're going to try this. If this doesn't work, we're going to try that. And well, what happens with that? It's a lot of time, a lot of side effects, it's a process that is difficult for a lot of people. And so we know there's a lot. We know which therapies work. We know that if you're mild to moderate with most problems, either therapy or medication can be helpful. But if you're more moderate to severe, you probably need medication and therapy to, to improve. But we don't really know, like, what's the unique combinations of, of medications that are probably going to work for you, given your own unique background. And then also, how does that match up with different therapies? So I, I think, you know, when we're both real old farts, we'll be like, <laughs> wow, remember back then in the 2000s right. when everyone just got an antidepressant if they needed right. medication and we didn't really know? And look at the world we have now. It's so precise. So that's another way where I think traditional treatments are being challenged in, in big fundamental ways in, in terms of medication now, where now we've got new medications. We never, again, like 10 years ago, I wouldn't have dreamed of psychedelic medication being prescribed to treat anxiety. Right. No, right. never. I would have never have thought that this would be something that's possible, but we got a lot of research now showing this, this is a good, uh, good path for some people. Right on. I, I got to ask this. Being that you sort of had a trial by fire, basically, in terms of your own social anxiety, yeah. where it was like, okay, oops, sign up for this wrong class. I can't get out of it. And now I have to talk in front of people. Holy shit. Yeah. Is that what you suggest for people who are going through a similar thing? The Is it just like jump into the water and cover your head with the water? Or... I, what I have discovered treating anxiety is there's, there's this magic time 
when the things that people have avoided very effectively, they can't really avoid them and are really motivated to overcome them. So, for example, I, I treated someone in New York City who had this person had lived their whole life in Manhattan and had a relative who lived in, in another borough. And they were terrified of bridges and tunnels, this person, which is why they only lived in Manhattan. And they never left Manhattan. And their relative would always come visit them in Manhattan. This relative then became sick and was unable to travel. And this is when this person came in to see me for help. It was this magic moment where they could no longer avoid it. They, they love this relative, wanted to see this person, and their anxiety of traveling over bridges and tunnels was keeping them from it. And their motivation now skyrocketed because if they don't overcome this, they, they will not see their relative. You know? Right. So similarly, I, lo- I worked with someone who needed to go through a medical test for the sake of their pregnancy, but had a needle phobia and then had to overcome this needle phobia. For me, looking back in high school, I was so desperate for, I think I just really liked girls. I think that (laughs) might have been part of it. (laughs) I just really wanted a girlfriend. I was so unhappy with how things were for me. Mm -hmm. And I was so also anxious about leaving this class. And so I thought like, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this will help me. You know, there must have been some aspect of that. But I'll tell you, it was having a teacher who met me where I was and met the whole mm. rest of the class. And that's kind of my long way of answering your short question is, do I recommend people dive into to most challenging thing? No, it's you, you got to find someone who's going to be your Gandalf, who's going to be your your Obi-Wan, who's going to be... Your Obi-Wan guy. You need your guide, right? Who's going <laughs> to... That's right. Who's going to meet you where you're at. And it's got to be that right time in your life where this is important to you and you're able to face it, you know. Miss Hayes, my, my teacher in public speaking, she didn't throw me into the deep end. She kind of gent- gently nudged me along there, but she knew how to do that. So that's kind of what what you got to find. And that might be a teacher. It might be a therapist. Could also be a friend, you know. Right. If you have anxiety about dating, maybe you need a, a friend who's a really good uh, good wingman there. Who's good, good, yeah. Yeah, who can kind of help you along, you know. Right on. Okay, last question. Yeah. In terms of mental health for men, mm-hmm. do you see, and is there anything specific that you see as, as something that men particularly need to overcome in terms of getting help, accepting help, whatever, or, you know, do you look at things from just a people need help type perspective? But is there anything that you, I guess, to reword that, is there anything in your experience that stands out? as being very specific to men in terms of mental health. Yeah, you know what? I mean, this will be no surprise to you. But when I was in New York at the Anxiety Disorder Clinic in at Columbia, I saw a lot of men and I saw a lot of boys. And I think part of it is because I do identify as male. And as a man, like, I think it's, is there any surprise that I had so many male clients when there were times where I was the only male clinician on staff and most of the other, most of the other clinicians did not have many men at all. I don't think it's a surprise there at all. I, I think Part of it is what you were saying that do I believe a therapist match is important, whether it comes from culture or gender or these other things? I don't think for everyone, but I think there are some people who just do better with a certain background or will feel more comfortable there. So I think that's part of it is for some people, they, they just might feel more comfortable with, with a particular gender. What I have noticed with 
working with with boys and men, I keep finding myself chipping away at what masculinity means. And I had this experience myself. I don't know if you've had this experience, but you probably have because this is America. But we have a very narrow view of what masculinity means. And part of being masculine in in America is about constantly testing it. Like, Like boys will often tease each other in a way that challenges their masculinity and they have to kind of puff up and defend themselves and say like, no, I am a man. Like, what do you like back off, man? And you, you prove yourself through these very narrow means of being a man by like fighting, pushing away, being strong, all of that sort of stuff. It's taken me a long time to deal with that stuff. And you know, a, a big part of it, actually was becoming a psychologist because I was so often one of the only men in a lot of my classes. And it, it so made me aware of the weird ways in which my ideas of masculinity were playing out, you know? So I, I keep coming back to that, that there's a lot of things I love about masculinity. I love confidence being assertive. I love ideas of taking care of others. You know, that that's at first glance, some people might say, what do you mean about that's that's isn't that more of a feminine trait? But I think like being able to be there for your friends and being able to be there for your family, being able to take on responsibility, these things I love about masculinity. But there's right. things I really dislike about it constantly trying to prove yourself, constantly trying to be so strong that you're doing it yourself. You know, boys don't cry, that kind of stuff. That that kind of stuff is crap. Like, look at all of our presidents. They, there's maybe not all, maybe except for one of the recent ones, but they all have examples of crying <laughs> and being emotional. You know, so I, uh, to me, what I often help boys and men understand is being strong also means knowing when you need help. Being strong means knowing when you need to tap out and you need to rest and recover. You know, Muhammad Ali, this guy that I was kind of named after, he knew when to tap out. He knew when to push. He knew when when to pull back. And I, I try to find things that my clients love, whether it's sports or pop culture or whatever it might be, history, And I find examples of strength that are about taking care of yourself, taking ownership, owning your challenges and owning your strengths, working with other people, working with a team, finding a coach, a mentor. That seems to help because a lot of the people I work with have come in with the expectation that they're a failure because they haven't been able to do it themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. But Mike, I mean, who does anything by themselves? By themselves. No, no, no man is an island, as no. they say. No, I mean, tying this back to, you asked me to kind of, like, what's my story? What I didn't mention is my mom always believed in my pursuing psychology. 100% believed in it. My dad took him a while to come around, but I would not have been where I am was if it wasn't for all of my mom's early support of psychology. I've had amazing mentors along the way. My boss in New York, super supportive of all the media stuff. No success that I have ever had has been something that I achieved by myself. That is just American cultural crap. You know? Yeah, I agree. I don't think any success that anybody achieves, no one is a self-made person. No, no. There's always people lifting you up. Absolutely. And, And that's why... You know, we have a responsibility to like one hand up, one hand down, right? Someone is helping us lift, lift, uh, lift ourselves up and we need to pull up those behind us and kind of work together here. So that's why, that's why I wanted to be on your podcast is I think conversations like this is, this is how we move this stuff forward. Um, you know, I, I wish I could have listened to this conversation like 30 years ago. I'd be in a better spot. Yo, I want to give such a big shout out to Ali for 
spending time with us and uh, giving his take on everything that we talked about. Um, sometimes it's really, really good to have a clinical perspective. And a lot of other times it's really, really good to have a human perspective. And Ali is living proof that the two things do not have to be mutually exclusive. Uh, if you want to find out more about Ali, there are many ways. You can go to his website, which is alimatu.com. Uh, Ali is the director of mental health at Loop, which is a startup that makes self-care social through small group real-time audio hangouts. It's that whole community aspect that I talk about a lot and he talks about a lot. He hosts The Psych Show, which is on YouTube. It is his YouTube channel. Over 5 million views, over 170,000 subscribers. People are getting religion. Ali is on Instagram. He is on Twitter. He is all over the place. And I wish there were more practitioners out there like him. I'm sure there are. Um, and uh, I'm just grateful for the time that he spent with us. And I'm grateful to have him in my life. So thank you, Ali, for all that you do. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to the Detoxicity Podcast. My name is Mike Joseph. Once again, if you want to find me online, hit me up on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy. I'm on Twitter intermittently at TizMikeJoseph. You can go to Facebook.com slash Detoxicity. You can email me, DetoxPod at gmail.com. Love to hear constructive criticism. Love to hear feedback. Would love if you are a potential guest or you know somebody who you think would be a potential guest, please, by all means, reach out to me. And remember, if you enjoy this podcast, subscribe, rate, comment, do all of the things necessary to push this podcast up in the podcast rankings and get this into as many ears as possible. Tell a friend, do whatever it is you need to do. And uh, thank you once again for listening. I personally want to thank the following people for their support. Uh, Calvin Williams and Jacob Block, Jeff Giles, and Andrew Grossman. Thank you very much. I hope all of you stay well, stay safe, and healthy. Until next time.